Morning, just looking at the weather. Uh, cold and mainly cloudy, sunny periods and dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 16 degrees. Moderate north to northeasterly winds, occasionally fresh offshore. Uh, the outlook remaining cold tomorrow morning. The cold weather warning is in force. Uh, the red fire danger warning is also in force. It's 13 Celsius, 77% relative humidity. Back chat with Jim Gould and Ada Wong is on in a moment. But I'll see you tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Uh, now here's Barry with the news headlines. Justice Secretary Paul Lamb has defended Chief Executive John Lee's request for the National People's Congress Standing Committee to interpret the national security law. Mr Lamb was referring to the question of whether or not foreign lawyers could take part in national security cases here. Speaking at the opening of the legal year, he said the Standing Committee's power of interpretation is a link between Hong Kong's common law system and the Chinese constitution. There are some suggestions that the interpretation has expanded the power of the chief executive and the Committee for Safeguarding National Security of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, eroding the judiciary's independent judicial power, and even putting the chief executive and the committee above the law. Such suggestions are plainly wrong and misconceived. The inter interpretation is by definition a clarification of the original intent and purpose of those provisions. It does not confer any new power on anyone. Top epidemiologist Benjamin Cowling says the mainland's COVID-19 death toll of 60,000 is an underestimate, given its strict definition of COVID deaths and that fewer COVID deaths tests are being done. Beijing released its figure on Saturday for COVID deaths that occurred from December the 8th, when epidemic restrictions were dropped. Professor Cowling from the University of Hong Kong told RTHK that there are other ways to judge fatalities. I would like to see information on how many people have died every week or every month in China in this winter. Uh, it may not be available for a while. Sometimes the mortality statistics take a while before they become available. But if eventually we have data on the respiratory deaths this winter in China, I think we'll see a clear surge due to COVID and we'll be able to estimate how many COVID deaths there have really been. And I'm sure it will be a much larger number than the 60,000 confirmed COVID deaths. Cathay Pacific has announced that it's cancelling some flights between the SAR and Japan in the first half of February. The announcement came after Hong Kong Express cancelled some flights, citing restrictions on flight numbers imposed by the Japanese authorities. In social media posts, Cathay said affected passengers would be moved onto other flights, adding that customers did not need to get in touch. The Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney, says the capture of the country's most wanted mafia boss is a major blow to organised crime. Matteo Messina Denaro, who'd been on the run for 30 years, was arrested at a clinic in Sicily, where he was being treated for cancer. The city's former mayor, Leo Luca Orlando, who fought the mafia throughout his political career, told the BBC the arrest marked a change in Italian attitudes towards the crime organisation. A fantastic day, but in this moment, I wish I need to remember the so many victims of the mafia boss in, in long years. And I wish to say the reaction of the people of Palermo, just the applause to the carabinieri. This is just a confirmation that Palermo is culturally really, really deeply changed. A video has emerged which appears to show the last moments inside a passenger plane that crashed in central Nepal on Sunday, killing at least 70 people. The footage shows four friends from India excitedly recording the descent on Facebook Live. They were heading to the city of Pokhara for a holiday. 
With no warning, the plane appears to veer off with a loud roar and passengers can be heard screaming. The screen fills with flames as it crashes. This woman witnessed the crash. I live in the house just next to the crash site. The plane crashed right across my house on a cliff. It came to the side of my house after bouncing back and then burst into flames. On hearing the sound, we looked out and saw a huge ball of fire in the air. We thought the plane was going to crash land over our house when my children and I were inside. But we were lucky that God saved us. Officials say the flight data and voice cockpit recorders have been recovered. The head of London's Metropolitan Police has said the force is investigating allegations of abuse involving about 800 of its own officers. Mark Rowley was speaking after a serving officer, David Carrick, pleaded guilty to 49 offences, including dozens of rapes. Nusrit Metab was a police superintendent with the London force, but resigned after alleging she suffered racist abuse and misogyny. The system and processes is broken. The misconduct process, the vetting process, the recruitment process. Hence, this individual is being allowed to join a force, uh, move departments without actually being detected. The police commissioner, Mark Rowley, has apologised for the Met's failings and has promised to be ruthless in rooting out officers who corrupt the force's integrity. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and normally on a Tuesday Ada Wong would be here as guest presenter but uh, unfortunately uh, Ada can't make it this morning. I am joined in the studio by Dr David Lamb, a medical and health services lawmaker who's here to discuss a matter of great concern. Uh, especially to the health sector, and that is whether uh, public doctors should be held criminally liable over medical errors. Last week, two doctors were charged with manslaughter over the case of a patient who suffered from acute liver failure before her death more than five years ago. It has led to discussions on the extent to which doctors... Uh, could or should be held accountable for medical blunders as well as the pressure being placed on hospital staff in the busy public health care system. And after 9.15, we're continuing with our ongoing tributes to Uncle Ray Cordero, the world's most durable DJ and RTHK legend who passed away last Friday at the age of 98. Uh, let us know what you think. If you uh, want to join the conversation, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or you can give us a call on 233 and as well as uh, Dr David Lamb, who I mentioned, we have uh, on the line uh, Calvin Ho, who's an associate professor with the Department of Law at the University of Hong Kong and co-director of the Centre for Medical Ethics and Law, and that's jointly run by the Law Department and the School of Medicine at HKU. Uh, good morning to uh, both our guests. Uh, 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 David Lamb, uh, first, um, thank you very much uh, for coming to the studio this morning. Um, a number of senior figures in the medical profession, including the current uh, health secretary, have expressed a, a concern about this case, um, the case of these two uh, doctors who've been charged with manslaughter. What, what effect uh, is it having on uh, morale in the medical sector? It is a most disquieting turn of the events, and colleagues are now in a state of horror, in a way. That's what we do uh, day in and day out could possibly sometimes be interpreted as um, 
beyond a professional responsibility, but to the degree of uh, attracting criminal liability, which is not what we understand our role to be all along. Uh, sh- sure. Um, I mean, obviously, there, there have been prosecutions uh, in, in the private sector of things like uh, beauty treatments and so on in the past, but uh, a, a case like this would seem to be uh, entirely different. I mean, these are uh, public doctors doing their, doing their public duty, and uh, you could argue that uh, it couldn't be expected to get uh, everything right all the time. Mistakes do happen. I mean, yeah. Exactly. Uh, the case that you, you caught just now, uh, which is which was a doctor who performed, say, anesthesia to, an, I mean, a surgery under anesthesia in his office for a patient. And then after the anesthesia, where there was no anesthetist to start off with, and then after the anesthesia and the surgery, the doctor just walked off, leaving the observation to an unqualified person, an assistant. And when the assistant tried to find the doctor, because she suddenly noticed that something was grossly wrong with the patient, then she couldn't locate the doctor, and it took some time, uh, or an unreasonably long period of time, before the doctor turned up again to uh, treat the patient. So those kinds of things are, are really beyond what we usually accept as a simple negligence, but that is quite gross in, it, in the degree of the negligence. So you, if you remember correctly, in those cases, um, the medical profession has not said anything at all and in fact we kind of support that the cause of law can root out some of the black sheep in the gang mm, mm. Uh, yes uh, is it a question do you think uh, do we need um, uh, clearer guidelines about um, doctors responsibilities and uh, uh, you know what would constitute uh, negligence or or, or, or just uh, basic errors or no yes i'm not uh, legally trained mm. um, but we just speak from the, the conscientiousness of the conscience of doctors mm. and negligence is relatively um, objective. We have a bolum, uh, bolum has been there for a long, long time. So, if a doctor um, he commits something or omits something and then he's charged of a negligence, then we would test if what he did or he did not do was in keeping with the current standard. And that's then, we understand that in the medical field, even for the same treatment, there could be different standard. So if there is a body, a responsible body of medical persons that is in line with, doc, with what the doctor has done or has not done, then he wouldn't be held liable for being negligent. So that's a, a negligence. But now, negligence is one thing. Being grossly negligent is another. So being grossly negligent to the degree that there is a kind of a disregard uh, for life and death of a patient or a gross disregard of our responsibility for the patient, that is something quite um, different and to a much more severe extent. So I think we have to differentiate between the two because doctors, uh, we day in and day out make judgments for our patients and if that is done out of good faith for the best interest of our patients and within our ability and that we also have fulfilled our duty of care to the patient, then if something goes wrong, say uh, not so s- a good judgment, then that remains that should lie within the realms of a professional liability rather than something criminal. Okay, um, um, Calvin Ho. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Thanks um, very much. Um, so. 
just following on from what uh, David Lamb was saying there, um, um, do you think we need um, like clearer guidelines in terms of uh, doctors' uh, responsibilities and liabilities in the public health care system? Uh, well, I think it will be helpful to have better guidance in terms of how uh, sim well, simple negligence is to be distinguished from gross negligence, manslaughter. Mm. Because I think there's broadly agreement in the field that as far as gross negligence, manslaughter is concerned, uh, it should essentially be reserved uh, for well, against individuals whose performance has been so truly and exceptionally bad that uh, such a prosecution is warranted. So uh, that there is some ambiguity in terms of where the uh, distinguishing line is between negligence uh, and gross negligence manslaughter, as we've heard from the previous speaker. Um, okay, a, a message here for, uh, on our Facebook from a listener, uh, Henry, says, uh, I'm only a layman, but as doctors at public hospitals usually have only uh, two to three minutes for patients, and although these doctors are professionally qualified, they are humans also. I would not think they are liable for the offence uh, that uh, are, is alleged. Uh, uh, if I'm a doctor, I would be shocked by such a charge, and, sh and that surely would affect how I treat my patients. Um, um, Calvin Ho, I mean, without going into the details of this particular uh, uh, case, because it is an ongoing um, court case, um, uh, do you think uh, that, um, uh, that professionals uh, in the medical sector, I know, I know you're a law professor, but uh, you're also involved with the Centre for Medical Ethics, uh, uh, are medical professionals uh, uh, feeling the strain uh, as a result of a case like this? Well, I think I can understand medical professionals being very concerned, but of course we, we must recognize that this particular prosecution is reserved for, as I've mentioned, something that's mm. seen as exceptionally bad. Mm. Uh, of course, given that the, uh, there is evidential basis for a prosecution to be raised, uh, we, it, it's still early basis to see how a court will ultimately determine. Of course, here in this particular instance, we do have an individual having died as a result of this, uh, this particular tragedy. So, um, so there would be some public interest basis uh, for the prosecution to pursue this matter. But again, it, it is uh, also important to recognize that uh, it is still early to see or, or to say if the matter is so exceptionally bad that uh, such a conviction could successfully be made. Uh, and what sort of circumstances uh, would be necessary for uh, a manslaughter charge, for instance? Well, um, well the, the fundamental basis is that uh, the victim must have died because of a particular act or commission on the part of the defendant in a, a particular uh, matter uh, of, of uh, when, when this charge is presented. So, um, well, otherwise, the elements are essentially similar to that of negligence. There must have been a duty of care, there must have been a breach of that duty, uh, and of course, that breach would have caused the death of the particular victim. But very importantly, as I've mentioned earlier, the breach must have uh, been found to be so sufficiently serious to constitute gross negligence. Of course, it's too early to say, and that is essentially dependent on the facts of the matter. Mm. Uh, and legally speaking, this uh, duty of care is one which uh, applies in the case of uh, the relationship between a, a doctor and patient. Yes, indeed. So that element tends not to be controversial within a healthcare setting. Mm. Mm.
Mm. Okay. Um, um, Dr. Lamb, uh, just going back to the point that our listener Henry made, uh, talking about uh, a limited amount of time that doctors have to spend with their patients. Um, how, how much of a sort of, of a factor is that in the sort of, you know, the, the atmosphere and the, the conditions that, um, uh, that uh, public doctors have to work under? I think the condition is definitely bad, uh, that doctors are required to see too many patients in a uh, specialist outpatient clinic. So generally, doctors stay late into the evening before they could finish all the cases that are supposed to finish by five. So, and if you give them the time, it's usually talking about maybe less than five minutes on average per patient, which is grossly insufficient. So there is certainly a degree of system failure in the hospital authority, not, uh, not mentioning any particular case, but generally. Mm. And this has been going on for not a day, not a year, but many, many years, and it's still not adequately addressed. So this is something that has been putting a lot of stress and strain on doctors and, and nurses as well. Um, and that could certainly increase the risk of uh, missing some points in a big pile of case notes, which we do have a very sufficient um, uh, case records nowadays because we have an electronic healthcare system that's basically got everything captured inside. Uh, but then the problem is you have a short period of time and you have a lot to read and you have to con communicate with the patient as has this condition and decide on the treatment. And if you compress all those in the three to five minutes time, uh, it's pretty difficult. Mm. So how long uh, an average working day would uh, a public hospital doctor have to do? Now, it varies a lot, but talk about myself when I worked in a public hospital for the first year as an internship, it's uh, about a hundred and... 10 hours a week mm, wow. and then yeah for the next three or four years it's like uh, 90 about 90 hours per week and then when i was qualified as a specialist and drops down to roughly 75 hours per week and that lasted until the last day i was working in a public hospital when i was senior medical officer so mm. it's a long working hours mm. uh, and then you have to be on call so you come back uh, in the middle of the night for duties and you mm -hmm. get up again in the morning and work again. So it's pretty tiring. Mm. Yeah. Uh, as you say, this has been the situation for, for, for many years. But um, is, is there any, any solution to it? I mean, does it have to be like that? I mean, how could, how could that be improved? Oh, that is a, big, uh, a very big topic uh, we start off with, uh, how to offload the cases from a public institution. And because we understand that many of the stable cases can actually be treated by the family, doctors in the community. So that's the primary healthcare development issue uh, in the long run. But in the short term, we have always been talking about more manpower. But then... Do you have enough nurses, even if you have enough doctors? And do you have enough consultation rooms, even if you have the, have the manpower? So another possibility is to purchase services from, say, the private sector, so open uh, holidays and weekends uh, and extra sessions um, using the same manpower, but of course you count that as an overtime service. All these are possible and has been discussed for a long time, but when it comes to implementation, I, I think it has... It could be done better in that, in a sense. Okay, uh, we're also joined uh, now on the line by Alex Lam, chairman of uh, Hong Kong Patients Voices. Uh, good morning to you. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, so, um, Alex Lam, what are your concerns uh, um, regarding, you know, the possible effect on the relationship between um, doctors and patients um, as a result of uh, of what we've seen with this prosecution? Well. Um for me, 
I think it is um, quite in, uh, in unimaginable to see the prosecution uh, finally step in after uh, quite a number of years. Uh, I, I thought that the case has been um, put to rest um, and everyone uh, move on. But uh, seeing this case, I, I was a bit uh, shocked. Uh, I think my concern is um, the, the possible impact on, on doctors because I have been talking to um, uh, some doctors uh, in my position as a member of the Medical Council. And um, I, I was told that um, there was quite a, discuss, uh, quite a number of discussions among the uh, professionals. Uh, um, and um, they are concerned that uh, this, this case, if the two doctors are found guilty of manslaughter um, by court, then um, that may be a um, gradually a defensive medicine uh, among the, the medical professionals that um, they perhaps uh, try to work less. Uh, I just, um, you know, we, we have heard uh, Dr. Lam mentioning about the long hours uh, uh, of doctors working in the public hospitals. So if, if um, this situation does not improve, then, then we'll be seeing that uh, either we see a lot of uh, mistakes committed in future, or um, no, no mistake made because the doctors may prefer not to work uh, so long hours. Maybe they will uh, try to work uh, to see less patients. So the patients may suffer because they, we, we already see a long waiting line, uh, especially in the uh, special clinics. And um, if, they, if the doctors are unwilling to see so many um, patients uh, every day, then um, because they, they want to have uh, more time to see the medical record, and that, uh, in the end, the patient will suffer. Mm. So w what do you think should be done about the situation? Well, the, the prosecution is, is um, it just started. I think there's nothing to stop the DOJ to, to run the prosecution. But I think the, the, the HA will have to do something about, um, you know, try to comfort the doctors. I think they are already mm. doing to give support to the uh, defendant doctors. And uh, more, most importantly, uh, I think they have to improve the, the working environment to allow the, the, the doctors to have more time to see each and every patient. And um, obviously, um, in, in my view, in this case, apparently this, this is some, somewhat uh, overlooking inadvertently uh, of the medical records of the patients causing the, the, um, the result. So there might be some uh, improvement of computer system to assist the doctor, uh, early warning, to prevent a similar mistake uh, in future. Mm. Uh, um, Calvin Ho, uh, just uh, picking up uh, on uh, one point there. I mean, it, it is more than five years now um, since uh, since this case um, uh, arose, and it was uh, dealt with internally by the. Uh, by the uh, uh, inside the, of the profession, and now, uh, now we have um, you know, five years later manslaughter charges. Um, do you have any sort of view on the length of time it's taken to to come to this stage? Uh, well, the length of time is not unusual in matters such as these, but I think it might be helpful in addition to what the other speakers have mentioned is perhaps to consider a development in the UK because there has been a review on the charge of gross negligence and manslaughter mm. <laughs> as applied to healthcare practitioners. And uh, from this particular review known as the Williams Review, it was recommended that the Director of Pro Public Prosecutions in the UK 
could possibly produce or update guidance on gross negligence manslaughter to essentially explain uh, where the threshold lies for prosecution of gross negligence manslaughter, uh, particularly within a health care context. So this is perhaps uh, a, a recommendation that the Department of Justice could consider here. And, and this might provide some assurance to um, healthcare practitioners that uh, essentially such a prosecution is not intended to uh, go after specific uh, failings in practice, but rather to address public interest in ensuring that our healthcare system remains safe and reliable. Mm. Uh, David Lamb, would that help, do you think, if there was such an assurance? If there is. Mm. But then we all agree that, uh, as Dr. Hall mentioned, that some negligence that is exceptionally bad, mm. then I, I don't think there is any controversy that uh, medics and, and even nurses and other professionals would consider that to be something really uh, go for more than a professional liability. But then it worries that when there is a case that is that has been heard by the medical council mm. i'm not going into any particular case but in general yes and that uh, the facts of the case has been reviewed to the uh, the profession and that profession has formed a clear understanding that whatever negligence there is it couldn't have been couldn't have been exceptionally bad mm. and if that case goes to uh, prosecution for gross negligence, manslaughter. That's what worries colleagues. Um, so we have no controversy that something that is willful, that is a gross disregard for life, um, should be prosecuted, but not a, a day in and day out case of a mistake uh, made in good faith and when the duty of care is not breached. So those are the things that we are worried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, w- and, and sorry, one more thing. Yes. And, and, and doctors and any other person should be judged not by the outcome but by what their behavior was actually. So an analogy would be a child who did poorly in an examination, then you you don't say because you did poorly you must have been lazy. There could be other reasons. So we don't judge according to the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Um, just uh, talking earlier as well about the about the pressure and the long hours that uh, that uh, doctors have to work. Does that put them in a situation whereby um, an error may become more likely if, if doctors are very busy and um, and working you know long hours every day and you know more than a hundred hours a week as if for interns as you mentioned before. Yes, definitely. Well, interns are supposed to be working under supervision, mm-hmm. but still, when there's long, well, I think there is enough study worldwide that long working hours and heavy workload increases the risk of um, errors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have been asking the hospital authority to bring in effective measures to reduce the amount of work to a reasonable level so that the doctors and the nurses as well can give every patient a reasonable period of time. But it hasn't come to any fruition, although we've been asking this for many years. Uh, So I understand that things are still going on, such as trying to um, push forward the special registration scheme and to attract overseas doctors, especially especially when they are Hong Kong people who went abroad to study. But then, again, it's not very effective so far. We've been trying to relax the... um, 
imports of doctors from across the border, but again, uh, that has not come to any fruition so far. So that's the manpower issue. But then after the manpower issue is we don't have enough places and the queue is just too long and doctors are not doing, are doing what they shouldn't be doing as a specialist. So sorry, they're doing what they shouldn't be doing as a specialist. Can you they should be seeing unstable cases, emergency situations, and difficult cases. Mm-hmm. But for stable cases who come back to the public hospital just for a review of their medicine, these could easily be managed by family doctors. That's why we are developing the primary care. But then that takes years, and we are facing a real crisis. So something has to be done urgently. And the first thing we should do is to reduce the working number of cases. So sorry, the number of cases, and set up new sessions, and ask doctors and nurses to come back on, on an overtime basis. Or you can even outsource those services to the private sector. So that's increased the capacity uh, for seeing patients without lengthening the queue time. Mm, mm. Um, um, Alex Lam, would you go along with that? Would that be uh, one way of, uh, of taking off some of the pressure? Well, uh, I think uh, yes, um, you can, uh, but uh, it still um, takes a long way to, to mm. go because uh, we, we just started about the blueprints for uh, primary health care. I think the government is doing something, but it's only a plan. Uh, we don't know how long it would take to, to um, make that happen. Uh, earlier on, we, we discussed about the district health center. It, it doesn't really serve any meaningful purpose at the moment. So we're talking about, um, we've been talking about um, uh, getting more doctors coming to work in Hong Kong. It doesn't really um, help because uh, we, we only see a few numbers, you know, um, under the special restriction Okay. Uh, change. Okay. Okay. So, Sorry, just going to have to pause you there because uh, we've got to take a break for the uh, news at nine o'clock. But uh, but stay with us, uh, uh, Alex Lamb and Dr. David Lamb. Uh, thanks very much to uh, Calvin Ho, who has to leave us now, associate professor with the Department of Law at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, a quick uh, look uh, at the weather. Uh, it's going to be cold, uh, mainly cloudy today, and uh, continuing uh, cold mornings uh, during the week. Uh, currently, the red fire danger warning is in effect, as is the cold weather warning. It's 13 degrees and humidity is at 76%. By Mark Rowley over the... Uh, over David Carrick over Mark Rowley's behaviour. This man abused women. Uh, it appears uh, that we're having a technical problem uh, with the news summary there, so uh, we're going to return to Backchat. And welcome back. And this morning, uh, we're talking about um, medical liability uh, following the case of uh, two uh, public doctors who've been uh, charged with manslaughter following the death of a patient uh, more than five years ago. Uh, um, With me in the studio is Dr. David Lamb, the medical and health services uh, lawmaker. Um, Also on the line, we have um, Alex Lamb, uh, chairman of uh, Hong Kong Patients uh, Voices. Um, A message here from uh, a a brief email from uh, listener... uh, Nigel says, uh, all over the world, doctors, like all other professionals, face such liability. Uh, that from Nigel, but um, I guess Dr. Lamb, you would say doctors are in a very different position from other professionals, right? I mean, they're, they're actually handling uh, the uh, patient safety and dealing with matters of life and death. 
Well, doctors make clinical judgments day in and day out, and we understand that clinical judgments affect the effectiveness of a treatment. And in the severe cases, it can be a matter of life and death difference. So that is our role as doctors. But then doctors are under several regulations. First of all, it's the professional regulation. So if the peers consider someone to have performed a below par, then he would be charged a form of professional misconduct. And secondly, doctors are also under the criminal law, as uh, in many cases in the past. So we are not only under the usual um, system of law uh, that controls the general public, but we also have our own professional disciplinary inquiry. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a, a stringent measures to control the behaviour of doctors. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Like, like you say, the, the, the medical council will deal with, uh, with uh, matters arising, disciplinary uh, yeah, matters professional arising, misconduct professional issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we understand that as adults we are fully responsible for all the decisions we make. But again, uh, provided we do lots of good faith uh, within our capacity, ability, and we fulfill our duty of care to the patient, then whatever goes wrong should... Uh, be under the professional liability um, area, but rather not uh, attracting other more serious allegations. Yeah, uh, you mentioned before the break um, the fact that uh, um, more focus, more attention is going to be placed on primary health care going forward. It was a big part of the chief executive's uh, recent policy address. Um, um, but how long do you think it would take before uh, that might change the the nature of the work and the and the pressure of the work that uh, public doctors face? It comes in phases. The first thing we notice is that. Uh, People in Hong Kong tend not to have their family doctors. Studies show that only about 40% of our public have their own family doctors. And they do not always see the family doctors for chronic stable cases. But then they use the family doctors for things like common cold, uh, gastroenteritis, which can be dealt with certainly by the family doctors, but they can do much more than that. And then we also notice that a lot of referral to the specialist outpatient clinic in the hospital authority were actually from within the hospital authority. So I'm talking like someone such as a surgeon sees a patient for follow-up of a hernia surgery, and then the patient says, hey, doctor, I've got uh, you know allergic rhinitis. Uh, so, so the doctor tends to just write a referral note and send it to the ENT surgeon. So all these adds up, and we do have uh, lots and lots of uh, internal referral cases and these cases can mostly be dealt with by the general uh, doctors or, or the family doctors. So measures, if we put those measures in place to refer these cases back to the family doctors and make sure that most people have their own family doctors, we hope that something can effectively can achieve within a relatively short period of time, like within a year or two. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, Alex Lam, would you go along with that? Uh, um, a, a better system involving family doctors? But only if um, you know we, we have to have a change of uh, culture mm. that uh, people would really make a change uh, when they need their medical service. That uh, there has been years, decades, that uh, people rely so much on the uh, public healthcare system that they do not, uh, you know, tend to uh, go visit a private clinic. Uh, probably because of the, the the money they spend would be different. Uh, government has spent um, so much money on uh, subsidizing uh, elderly people to, to visit private um, health care. 
but yet uh, they they rather you know save the money for some other purpose and wait for this and perhaps wait for the expiry of this uh, uh, voucher. Uh, it, it's not. Uh, if it is not uh, making any um, good progress, then we have to make some uh, other change, uh, including something new that I, I wanted to mention before the news that uh, the Hong Kong government should uh, consider establishing the third uh, medical school because the, the second one in Hong Kong, the last one in Hong Kong was established some half a century ago when the population was that, uh, wasn't that high. Mm-hmm. And we have a huge population, 7 million people, and we only have two medical schools. I think mm-hmm. we, we should start uh, discussing about having the third one. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, with the third one, we, we have a, a, um, a role to uh, increase the number of uh, doctors by changing the numbers of uh, students in, in this uh, new medical school. And mm-hmm. that we have a leading role to control the number of doctors uh, trained in Hong Kong and work in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So that more doctors trained, more medical graduates. Um, um, yeah. Uh, so, so, so currently, the two medical schools are University of Hong Kong uh, and uh, Prince of Wales uh, Hospital. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, exactly. And, and, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chinese U and Hong Kong U. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, is that something that you would support, um, David Lang? Third, <laughs> third medical school. Or? Well, I'm not. Cert- I'm certainly not against it. But then um, we also need dentists, hygienists, dental therapists, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists. Mm-hmm. So we have a long list, and if we are uh, to invest, I think we have to be very prudent with our limited resources. And in the short run, we must understand that half of our doctors are working in the private sector and the other half in the public sector. And then the public sector is really overloaded, but then we still have spare capacity in the, in the private sector. So um, the easiest way out and the shortest period of time that we can achieve it is to uh, move the patients to the public sector. And if we talk about cost, as Alex mentioned, it's very correctly is that people tend not to see their family doctors because they have to pay out of their pocket. So a kind of uh, strategic purchasing of uh, services from family doctors will be very useful and very helpful that helps to reduce the patient's um, stress on the financial situation. Also, it makes makes it easier for them to see their doctors uh, well within the community. And if you come to the cost, uh, the figures, which is public figure really, uh, of seeing a specialist in the hospital authority, outpatient clinic, uh, is roughly over $1,300,400 per visit, of course drugs included. But if you see the same, uh, I mean, see the family doctors for the same problem, uh, the cost comes to like three hundred. Uh, $50 for consultation and then maybe 200 to $300 for medicine. So that's almost, that's more than halving the cost for seeing a special outpatient clinic. So that's something the government understand and is moving forward to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Alex Lamb, do you think uh, th- those cost structures uh, could be amended uh, to make the situation more efficient? Yes, uh, I think we, we well, at least government can consider this uh, if uh, this is uh, something uh, possible because uh, we, we're talking about um, there will be uh, some financial situation for the government to, to uh, for the injection of this money. And uh, as, as I say, that you, you have to have the change to uh, a culture to make people um, 
change the, the, the way of thinking in the, or before the consulting and doctor. Money is a big concern. So uh, if uh, there's a government subsidy, that, that will change the, the culture. But, but uh, I think that we've been talking about uh, government um, uh, subsidy is good, but you have to also move the, the people out there, especially the elderly, to, to put some money uh, up front for the primary health care like um, checking their, their health condition um, checkup and uh, some other um, preventive uh, measures to, to improve their, their health condition so that uh, in the long run they don't have to see a doctor. We did um, also uh, mention earlier the issue about uh, overseas doctors uh, coming to Hong Kong. This is quite a long-running um, issue. Um, it doesn't seem to have made uh, had much of an impact uh, uh, so far, but uh, is that something that you would like to see more of? And, um, and do you think sort of uh, down the road that can be a big help? No, I don't. I, I'm, uh, I'm not optimistic about this. Uh, so far, there has been change of law uh, over a year, and, and yeah. so far we only have about 10, 10 doctors um, working under the special registration. And uh, if not all, then most of these uh, doctors uh, working under the special registrations are actually changed track from um, um, a limited registration. So, so essentially they, they, they come to Hong Kong to work uh, on the limited restoration then they change the, the restoration hoping that uh, after working for five years they can be uh, you know getting the uh, full restoration to practice private yeah so I, I don't think it is uh, in the long run they, they move to the private and there's uh, you, we're seeing the losing of these uh, 10 doctors in the long run, not to mention we, it's only a few number of doctors not really help uh, a lot. So, so uh, overseas doctors, uh, not the answer, David Lam, or, or not, uh, <laughs> not the main answer. No, talent is needed worldwide, not only in the medical field, but in all sorts. And we, we well, put it in the right perspective, we have locally trained doctors, about uh, 600, 500, 600 doctors graduating every year. Mm -hmm. And examinations, which has been stopped for three years because of the pandemic, they usually generate like um, 50 doctors, new doctors from, per year. And then we have the limited registration. And we do have a lot of regis limited registration doctors working particularly in the universities. But you do not see a rise because they have to renew their, their limited registration every three years. So we're dealing with the same group of patients, I mean doctors, year after year. Then now we have the uh, special registration which takes time to show its effect and the progress has unfortunately been relatively slow. Mm -hmm. And then I understand that the hospital authority uh, has a plan to attract doctors from across the border to come to Hong Kong to work as uh, kind of a uh, uh, senior doctors working here in our, our hospitals. But then we're talking about 10 to 20 doctors per year, and that's not a lot. So yes, we do have an, a problem with increasing our human resources, a pool of human resources, mm -hmm. and that takes time to build up. And I believe what we can do at the present moment is to shift the balance, shift the patients out to where we still have capacity. That will be the easiest way out and the quickest way out. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much for uh, explaining that and uh, talking to us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, that was uh, Dr David Lam, uh, medical and health services lawmaker. And thanks very much also to Alex Lam, chairman of uh, Hong Kong Patients Voices.
And um, before the break, uh, we heard from uh, Calvin Ho, um, Associate Professor with the Department of Law at the University of Hong Kong. And for the last uh, ten minutes or so of this morning's uh, programme, we're going to turn our attention to um, another topic, uh, and that is an ongoing uh, series of uh, tributes that we've been uh, playing for our veteran uh, presenter and legend of RTHK, uh, Ray Cordero. Uh, Uncle Ray, who uh, sadly passed away last Friday at the age of uh, 98, um, he was uh, the, the world's most durable DJ, according to uh, Guinness World Records. Um, his late-night pro programme, All the Way with Ray, had run from 1970 all the way till uh, 2021. Uh, when he finally retired at the age of uh, 96, um, Ray Cordero, uh, uh, really a legend of Hong Kong, brought on many, many local uh, musical stars, had many friends in the local entertainment sector, and of course uh, um, interviewed a number of international stars as well when they were in Hong Kong or, or when he was overseas. Famously met the Beatles three times in 1964. Um, anyway, among uh, Ray's uh, uh, many friends and performers here um, was of course uh, Philip Chan, who now joins us now. Philip Chan, a veteran actor, singer, film director, uh, producer and music composer. Uh, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, of course, we were all very sad to hear of the passing uh, of uh, Uncle Ray um, last Friday, and we've been playing, uh, like I say, uh, many tributes to him uh, uh, since then. What, can, can you just tell us um, um, what are your earliest uh, recollections? Uh, what, what, in what circumstances did you first meet Uncle Ray? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for giving me the, uh, giving me the opportunity to pay tribute to this great person. Yeah. Uh, not just as a DJ, but as a man and uh, as a friend. Mm. Uh, I've, I've known him since the 60s, and I've known him in many different aspects, because uh, a lot of people would uh, regard him as a DJ, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> I met him in the 60s when he was still stationed at the old uh, Cable and Wireless building, uh, DJing, mm -hmm. and uh, I remember I walked into his office as a teenager, and uh, I was one of those uh, pioneers in Hong Kong Western pop music in the 60s. Yeah. I was still at high school, and I had a group called the Astronauts. Yeah. And uh, I forgot why I was there, but I, obviously I was there for, for a favor. And uh, obviously he was trying to promote our group in the same way that he had promoted uh, music and, uh, and all the other young student groups in Hong Kong who, who was making an attempt to, uh, to break into the uh, into the Western pop, I walked into his office and there was this guy in a in a, in a, in a, in a white shirt, and uh, and I, I was in awe. I was quite scared of him because I was only a teenager, <laughs> and, and he was, although he wasn't that much older, uh, but he was still uh, and very pretty authoritative. But he instantly uh, surprised me as being very kind, yeah. and uh, and we and we talked, and that was the first time. And then the second time I ran into him was when he had a band. He had a band, and he was he was a drummer. And uh, I think uh, we were in some sort of a competition together, and he beat us. So, so I, I must have forgotten about that, that that part of it. And then I met him again at the Savoy.
boy nightclub in uh, in Central when I was uh, when I was doing a summer job as a student during the summer holidays. And I was singing in the nightclub there at the Savoy nightclub, and uh, he was with he was with another band. He was with he was with a combo, so to say. And uh, there were five persons, and he was a drummer. And uh, we didn't talk much, but 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 I was always you know sort of like sneaking in next to him and listening to his drum playing, and and uh, and he didn't look at me much because I I was just a skinny young jerk, <laughs> and uh, I was I was a I was a singer there with a big band who was just a cool who had also first that he passed away recently, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the years we got closer and closer, and I and. We didn't talk much every time because if you know Ray, he's got so many people around him all the time wanting yes. to talk to him. Yeah. And we were we, we were always at the uh, the Elvis Presley fan club of Hong Kong, and uh, I think he was a, a patron there. And uh, I was always a, a guest and a singer, and uh, I would always like to sit next to him because you feel so comfortable when he doesn't talk much, but he has this way of letting you feel that he cares about you and he cares about what you're doing recently. Uh, and he and he and he loves everything that. that well, you, you you tend to think that he really like what you're doing. Yeah. And and whenever I sing, I look at him uh, sitting at the table, and he's got that attentiveness and that kind of smile and and his eyes that are so caring. Uh, so I really miss this guy, mm. but I don't feel sad about his passing because I think I celebrate my life. I celebrate my friendship with him. And uh, I'm glad that you know in, in Hong Kong we have such a, such a legend and such a nice person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Uncle Ray, uh, and then we sat together when he did his uh, biography. And I, I had the uh, honor of being asked to uh, to contribute some memories to the uh, to the music scene in Hong Kong in yeah. the sixties. And, uh, and every time in my life, I think I think it's a. I think it's some sort of a karma that I should bump into him all the time. And he made me feel so good. Mm. It's uh, meeting Ray every time, no matter how brief it, could, it, it was, it made me feel very wholesome and secure. Mm. He seemed to have this kind of aura around him that, uh, that he is the father, that mm. he is the father of mm. anyone who loves music. Yeah, and I th- who cares about people. That's, that's right, and, and I think uh, many people have said, of course, and, and, and we knew him, of course, uh, very well here at, <coughs> excuse me, at RTHK at Radio Three. I mean, he was a very caring person, and he would always uh, remember little details about everything. And you, you know, you can have a conversation <laughs> with him. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, w- w- what do you think about um, Ray's legacy in terms of uh, you know helping to develop the local music scene? Oh, definitely. I don't think. Uh, me and my group, the astronauts, would have, because uh, we came out quite early in the 60s, I think it was 63, we, we joined some Coca-Cola uh, competition, and and then that's when I knew him, and when he started promoting, he, I think he was the one who introduced us to Diamond Records, which was one of the first record companies in Hong Kong, which, uh, which published uh, and distributed uh, Western pop music, and that's, that's, the, that's the record company which... Uh, uh, with which I did, I think I did one EP, and then uh, I and then uh, we did with a con- uh, compilation uh, of my own composition, my own composition, etc., etc., et uh, together with Teddy Robin and Playboys, etc. Mm-hmm. I think without him, I can't imagine how the, the Hong Kong pop music scene would have even started, because mm-hmm. he was the he was the go-between. I think he was the one who introduced us 
to the record companies and also promoted us on the on on, on the radio. Mm. Uh, so it, it, it's amazing. I can't imagine Hong Kong without him. Mm. Not mm. to mention not to not to mention the music scene, you mm. know, mm. because uh, he's just such a father, such a father figure. Not just not just uh, in, in in appearance, but also in all what he's done for us. Uh, and without asking for any return, you know, this this kind of generosity mm. uh, is amazing. And of course, uh, you yourself, you were among a number of performers who uh, appeared at um, Uncle Ray's farewell concerts at the Coliseum um, back in uh, 2021. Um, yes. It was quite yes. spectacular events. Yeah, I, I was there myself. Uh, what, what, what are your recollections of that? Uh, well, when, when, when you step into that concert, I think you have every, every singer who had one thing in mind is how to please this guy. Right, yeah. Because, uh, because it's been So we're, we're all celebrating his uh, life and uh, achievements yes, uh, at the yes. moment. So what, 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 what are some of your best memories of Uncle Ray? Uh, well, I can't pick one moment when he, when he really supersedes his mm. last mm. Uh, in time in terms of uh, generosity, kindness yeah. and love. Mm. Uh, well, with my regret, as you say, my one regret was I was in Guangzhou recently, and I got this phone call from uh, from his family, and and uh, and they asked me, said, "Would you like to come and see Ray?" And I think uh, we've given up medication on him, and uh, I said, well, "I would love to, but I can't come." But can you do me a favor? And I say, I told Andy, I said, Andy, could you please go to his ear and whisper him that Philip Chan misses you and wants you to recover soon and join us at the next mm. get-together. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I read in the news the next day that, that he had passed him. Right. And, uh, right. and of course, I, I was stricken. But, yeah. but then, uh, whilst I'm sad, I also celebrate his presence and, uh, and what he's done for us. Sure, of course. And then, uh, and then of course, yeah, let, let, let's also remember his, uh, his uh, December birthday parties, which became a sort of regular... Uh, spectacular, didn't they? Yes. In late, late, in, yes. In late years. Every yeah. year, yeah. I, I would be so disappointed if I was not invited. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it came in so many different forms. And I remember uh, we were we were in a shot in the Hyatt Hotel. Mm -hmm. I think it was last year, mm. and uh, we went there, and he was in the wheelchair, and we all went over, and I knelt next to him, uh, and he held my hand, and we took a picture, and that only took about I think what a couple of minutes, but in my heart it would last a lifetime. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a spectacular 
character, yes. Uh, okay, well, look, um, um, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, on the programme and sh sharing your memories with us. Uh, that was uh, Philip Chan, a veteran actor, singer, a film director and uh, producer and also a uh, music composer who was uh, one of the uh, friends of um, Uncle Ray Cordero, um, our uh, RTHK uh, legend, Uncle Ray, uh, who died uh, last Friday at the age of 98. Um, and uh, keep listening to Radio 3. Uh, we've been playing a, a number of tributes to Uncle Ray. There will be uh, more to come. Um, he was, of course, uh, in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's most durable DJ. Um, also, during his lifetime, he was awarded uh, an MBE, uh, the Bronze uh, Bauhinia Star, and uh, just last year, uh, the Silver uh, Bauhinia Star from the Hong Kong government. OK. Um, thank you very much uh, to our listeners. Um, thank you very much to uh, people who wrote in. I, I, I did get a few other emails and um, a couple of Facebook messages and not entirely uh, appropriate to uh, what we were talking about. But um, anyway, um, uh, for the rest of the week, uh, Andrew Work will be here tomorrow and also, I believe, uh, Danny Gittings. So uh, do get in touch. Uh, the number is 233 uh, You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or leave a message on our Facebook page at backchat on rthk radio 3. Uh, now we're coming to the end of this morning's um, backchat and we're going to have uh, a quick look at the weather before we go to the news summary. And um, brunch with Noreen. It's going to be cloudy and cold today. Um, the, uh, the what's the outlook okay remaining cold tomorrow morning mainly fine in the middle and latter parts of this week temperatures will rise slightly on lunar new year's eve and lunar new year's day but it will be rather cool in the morning in the following couple of days now currently the red fire danger warning is in effect and so is the cold weather warning it's 14 degrees now and humidity is at 73 percent the new law to regulate tenancies of subdivided units is now in force. Each regulated tenancy is for two years. The tenant is entitled to renew the tenancy once. The rate of rent increase on renewal must not exceed the rate of change of the relevant rental index of the Rating and Valuation Department and is capped at 10%. The landlord cannot charge non-permitted expenses and must submit a notice of tenancy. For inquiries, please call 21508303. The new summary with Barry O'Rourke. Cathay Pacific flight attendants say they will implement a work-to-rule protest from Thursday, despite the airline's insistence that it has addressed concerns about rosters. The airline has told passengers that...